Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week's guest is actor, director and writer Daniel Tatarski, appearing on the show wearing his writer's hat. I first became aware of Daniel's work around 2005, shortly after Flick to Kick, an illustrated history of Sabucho, was published by Orion. It's a beautiful book, a book that inevitably, with my lifelong obsession with Sabucho being what it is, is one that I revisit frequently. It's just a book I never get tired of, and when I was developing this show back in the summer, you know, before those unmasked builders came in to deliver the nightmare before the pandemic Christmas and new windows that have not warmed this flat up one iota were put in, Daniel was very high up on my list of potential guests. If anything, I think the book was ahead of its time. That flourishing online Sabuccio community and its various big table soccer offshoots wasn't there when Flick to Kick was written. And I can't help thinking, especially as it's hard to find reasonably priced copies, that Orion Books are missing a trick in not publishing a new edition. While the official Sabucho Hasbro game staggers on unconvincingly, that community of older and younger players is ensuring the game enjoys a real boom time. Things to look out for here audio-wise, there's one tiny police siren. Daniel and I both live in London, so I can't be sure if that siren was my end or his. My work doesn't sell as well as his, so given that my postcode is likely to be less prestigious, it's likely the siren emanated from my neighbourhood. Also, and I did weigh this up carefully before pushing ahead with the pronunciation, when discussing the 3D figures launched by Peter Adolf that elevated Sabucho to the top of the table soccer world in the early 60s, I didn't know whether to call them zero zero figures or OO figures. I went with a former, Daniel went with OO, and as I edited this interview, I came to the conclusion that it was me that made the wrong choice. I'm pleased to say, however, that when discussing the new footy patent, or rather the lack of a patent, that effectively brought down that forerunner of Sabucho, I followed Daniel's lead and went for patent rather than my usual patent. The anal stuff aside, it was a comprehensive interview looking at Peter Adolf's creation of Sabuccio just after the Second World War, its development in its first decade and a half, 
The bitter war with table football rival New Footy, the possibly ill-judged decision by Adolf to sell the game to Waddington's in the late 60s, his attempt to create a new Sabuccio to take on the old Sabuccio, if you're with me, and Sabuccio's fall from grace after the 70s. Here's Daniel Tatarski. We're going to begin some 20 years before you and your brothers get your bespoke Sabuccio knee pads, which we'll come to shortly. Peter Adolf, in his 30s, created Sabuccio in 1947, an ornithologist, a lover of fast cars. Adolf gave his new game the scientific name of his favorite bird, the hobby hawk, Falco Sabuccio, shortened to Sabuccio. Can you start us off with how Peter Adolf gets Sabuccio off the ground, where he's advertising how much of Sabuccio or a prototype of Sabuccio exists before the launch? Well, before the launch, there really wasn't anything. All he was offering when he put an advert in the boys' own paper, just advertising a price list. Amazingly, not only was he expecting people to ask for that price list, he was asking them to pay for it, which today seems really weird. You know, if you got an email from, I don't know, Amazon or someone like that saying, send us £5 and we'll send you our catalogue, you would be amazed. But people did ask for the price list. He hadn't made any of it at that point. He just had ideas. He had pretty strong ideas of what he wanted to make. But it was at a time after the Second World War where people didn't know what was going to happen. The economy of the country was a bit shot because they'd spent all our money in the war. But sometimes that sort of situation creates a lot of opportunities. And I think he was an opportunist and saw his chance and took a risk, really, or, or not really a risk. You know, The only risk he took initially was the cost of the advert. And he got a lot of people sending in postal orders around seven and a half thousand pounds is the, the figure that's oft quoted that he received um, and then had to try to produce produce a game um, that he was then going to fulfill. Initially, he just had to send out the price list and then, then the actual orders came in for the game that he wanted to produce. But he, yeah, I say he had a pretty good idea of what he wanted to make, but he hadn't actually created anything that he could show anyone. I think you've answered the first part of my next question i get the imp- <laughs> oh no 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 i get the impression this was seat of the pants stuff you say he was an opportunist but the second part of that question do you think he anticipated the success i don't think he had any clue that it would be as successful as it was as i say he took a bit of a punt he was still working for an insurance company from what i recall and he had this this part-time business where he was selling rare eggs which was seasonal, and he would travel around the world collecting them and bringing them back. And he was just finding different ways to make money. I mean, I suppose someone nowadays, if they're in their mid-30s, they pretty much know what they're going to do. They'd, they'd have a career path, whereas just because his late 20s, early 30s had been interrupted by the war, he didn't really have that. So he was just throwing stuff at the wall and, and seeing if anything stuck. And, and to his good fortune and to our everlasting delight, he came up with, <laughs> with something amazing. So he's out in the States evaluating some rare bird's eggs, which you write in your book was a lucrative season sideline. He's out in the States and these orders start flying in. They're going to have trouble meeting these orders. So I take it he rushed back. That's right. He rushed back. He started sending out the price lists. And then I think his second advert was apologizing for how slow everything was coming. But I think Sometimes when when things are in short supply, it actually creates more interest. And so the fact that people were seeing that it was taking a while to fulfill orders increased the interest in it because people immediately think, well, if something's rare, it must be good. I want to get in on it. 
and then he had to start actually making the, the product itself, which was a case of just cobbling stuff together. It's, you know, it all sounds a little bit Blue Peter, sticky back plastic and a bit of blue tack, um, just trying to make these sets to get them sent out. And, you know, if you look on the internet or if you look on the, in the book, you, you'll see that those, those early sets are very, they're very primitive. You know, the, the goals are made out of, of wire, the sort of goal you could probably make out of a coat hanger today. The nets were made out of paper or, you know, slightly thicker than paper, sort of car, thin cardboard. Um, and the players themselves, you had, they, they were printed on cardboard and, and you had to cut them out yourself. It was very much a, a, a do-it-yourself type of game that you received in the post. And obviously one of the most famous elements of those early sets was that you didn't get a pitch with it. You know, the, I think the, the Sabuto pitch now is quite iconic. I've, I've even got mine's hanging upstairs on my wall in my office, which I take down every now and then and play with. But you just got a piece of chalk and you had to draw the pitch out yourself on an army blanket, which again in a way was, was lucky for him because a lot of people were coming back from the war with, with army blankets. Initially, the business is run entirely via mail order. Overheads are low. In those early years, he's running the business from a room at the back of his mum's house. He's still working in the pensions office, I think, at the time. So yeah. it was all very well planned. I mean, you think sometimes, or I think, had I been in his position, I'm quitting my day job right away. I'm, I'm thinking I'm on the <laughs> cusp of being a millionaire. But he was quite cautious as well as well as being a chancer he's it looks like he had a long-term plan he, he was calm about the success coming his way maybe I think he was surprised by the success and because the success was such a surprise he didn't give up his job straight away in a way he was hedging his bets because you never know whether those initial orders once you, once you've sent all of those out and, and obviously they were quite lucrative you don't know whether that's going to lead to more success and obviously part of the success of the game is that you play with other people and if people enjoy playing the game then it's an automatic method of word of mouth because you could sit at home Daniel as I'm sure you often do <laughs> and you could play that you could play Sabutia but it's much more fun if you play with someone else once you've played with someone else inevitably they're going to get their own set and so it, it spreads I hate to use the, the pandemic as an example but I think the R rate for early Sabutia was probably two or three now, uh, and forgive me if there are things that I mentioned that you don't remember. Most of all of this is is actually gleaned from your book, which is very comprehensive for a book, which isn't <laughs> necessarily you. the biggest the biggest book one would wish the book to be, but it is very comprehensive. There's an intriguing character in those early Sabucho years, a man called George Underwood, involved with miniature football from a young age. Can you tell us a bit about him? To be honest, I can't remember much about George Underwood. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll remind you and let's see. If, if Go on I... then. Yeah, I should say at this point, obviously, you know, I, the book came out, this is to give myself an excuse, the book came out 17 years ago. And whilst I'm still a, a Sabutio enthusiast, the, the nature of the work that I do, it might be the same for you as well, that the once you've done one interview and you've done a lot of research for that interview, a week later, you know, when you're doing the interview, you're an expert on it. A week later, you, you might not be. It's similar with me, with, with the books I wrote, even though Sabutio was a passion that I really wanted to write about. I've done sort of 13 books or so now. And for a, for a few months, I'm an expert on whatever that topic happens to be. And then once that book's in print, some of that information does disappear because I have to, uh, I have to move on and, and put sourdough recipes in my brain and stuff <laughs> like that. Well, that's, uh, that's understandable. Though what I will say from getting all this information from your book is there you are you're a, a writer actor 
director, here I am, a struggling writer at my end. And I'm surprised that no one has actually ever tried to perhaps dramatize the Sabucho backstory because it is an interesting story. These days, everyone's talking about the worth of a Sabucho set. You've got all these collectors online and what they do is brilliant. But the history and some of those early figures in Sabucho's development and the rivalry, which we'll come to with other football games, is really interesting. This guy, George Underwood, to get back to him, he has seen service with the Royal Navy in the Second World War. He put together his own football game, cut in the heads of bolts, welding small footballer-shaped figures and playing an expanded version of something called Tuppenny Football where mm-hmm. coins are propelled by the player's hair combs. And according to another guy mentioned in your book, John Burbage, who joined Sabutio in the late 60s, it's Underwood who tells Adolf about this game that Underwood was playing during the war, though I should stress at no point does Underwood make any claims to having invented the game, and he works for Sabutio until 1981. But I do find that interesting, because we've already got another game, as we'll come to, that we see is very, very similar to Sabutio, or rather yeah. Sabutio is similar to that game. <laughs> So it is interesting. No one, I think, is ever claiming that Peter Adolf had come up with something original. He just built on maybe what was out there and took it to a completely different level. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that Hoover made the first vacuum cleaner, but then made the one that became synonymous with the product in the same way that Peter Adolf did. He made the best football game or table soccer game, whatever you want to call it. And also his genius was, was in marketing it. Lots of other people had come up with the idea, you know, William Keeling had come up with New 40, as you say, which we're going to mention in a little while, but hadn't patented it, hadn't marketed it as well. was maybe unfortunate with the timing when he'd come up with the idea. Adolf's genius was to take advantage of the gap in the market and kids after the war wanting to play football. Maybe, you know, obviously a lot of them had lost their fathers, so they were playing more with their mates, I suppose. I hadn't thought of that. That's actually very interesting. A lot of these kids, the early Sabucho players, wouldn't have had dads. So there you go. It's playing against your friends. It's spreading the game well and looking for some sort of community although obviously you know everyone talks about the wartime spirit and everyone coming together i think post-war you're coming together in a different sort of way obviously during the war you're just trying to survive but then after the war you're trying to find the joy of life again Uh, you know and i'm not saying that sabuto in itself brought us through (laughs) any post-war depression or anything like that but i you know i think it was one thing that did bring people together and gave them some sort of common thing to do Especially when they couldn't play football, you know, as I would say, playing football was my first joy. But when I couldn't play football, the thing that I used to do with my friends was, was play Sabutio. The first 14, 15 years of Sabutio are very different to what is to come, principally in regards to the figures. We've already talked about some of the early accessories. Tell us a bit about those original cardboard figures and then the switch to those celluloid flat teams. Those original teams were just made out of cardboard. You'd get the base, you'd get the cardboard, you know, a sheet of cardboard, basically, with the teams printed on, and you'd have to cut them out. And obviously, there were problems with that. If you weren't so good with your scissors, you'd you'd lose stability on your players, and it could affect your your chances of winning games. Um, And so the next phase was, was to bring in flat acetate which gave it a slightly better look. And it also meant that when you got that acetate, you, you, in effect, you punched it out of the, the sheet. So it, it was a lot firmer, but it was, it was still quite brittle. And I think it allowed him to move the game to the next level. I just think it, it felt a little bit more professional. 
you know, we, we could all draw Sabutio players on a piece of card and cut them out. But when, once you get them printed on this flat acetate, then you start to get a feel that this is a proper game that I can share with my friends. And also, I think it makes it a little bit more collectible, which is one of the other vital things that made Sabutio such a fantastic game because it wasn't just about playing it it was about collecting it and having more teams and, and with the cardboard ones because they were so fragile the collectability of them was less so you know when you when you're looking online now to, to buy old sets or old teams you're going to find fewer of those cardboard ones because you know it just takes someone knocking over their halftime orange juice and, and a player is is a soggy mess whereas the acetate ones lasted a little bit longer and make as I say made them more collectible for a while, Adolf and Sabuccio keep both lines running. At some point, customers start sending in special requests for kits. As you touched on here, this is the collecting element of Sabuccio, which is possibly its greatest strength, I think. And yeah. Adolf then sees that big opportunity. And regardless of the types of figures it was making, the idea to make so many different teams, I mean, it just takes it, elevates it to a, a different level doesn't it from its competitors that's right and it's it's that thing you know with, with the early ford motor cars you know you could have any color you want as long as it was black and with the early sabicio sets you'd have a, a blue and white team and a red and white team and whilst at the time kits weren't that variable so that did cover a multitude of of different teams up and down the country as soon as you start introducing those there's other teams beyond the blue and red teams people start feeling more connected to it so they've got that you know you've got Blackpool Newcastle whatever Sunderland Celtic and so on and so forth so that you've got your own team and also when you're having matches against your siblings or against your friends you can have a proper match up between the teams that you both support rather than just saying well look, blue today is going to be uh, I don't know, Newcastle and, and red is is going to be Norwich you've actually got the Norwich kit or you've got the Newcastle kit and it gives it that little level of specificity i suppose and, and just makes it a more personal thing it, it, it's, like, it's like with anything you know when people get cars and they start pimping them up to <laughs> to make them make them their own or you know when people first buy their houses and they're put on their own front door and stuff like that it, it's that sort of thing rushed out for christmas 1961 there's the advent of the 3d 00 scale figures that really transforms sabucho it's a it's a massive improvement on those uh, celluloid figures. The information on the site of the ever-elusive Peter Upton, whose uh, Sabucho tribute site for me is unrivaled as a, as a Bible, tells us that these early heavyweights, although the bigger bases packed a decent shot and were better at traveling in straight lines, overall, it was felt by competitive players that the players weren't as good. So for a while, the more serious adult players stuck to the original flat game but the new zero zero version that's adopted by kids everywhere by the late to mid sixties, we move into the classic heavyweight era. Would you say this is the era on which Sabucho's strong reputation is built? I think the big thing was, as you say, when the three d figures first came in, I think that was a quantum leap in in terms of of the game, just because whilst those flat acetate figures were nice, I just think having something that's three d makes such a big difference. It's the difference between if you play a very early video game where you know people obviously still love Pac-Man and, you know, you look at the difference between playing Pac-Man and one of the, you know, single player games now where you're walking through a real, a real street and you can look left and right and behind you and you decide where you want to go. I think it was that bigger leap and that's what gave 
Adolf and Subutio their big advantage in the market because they were the first to do it. You know, as you'll have probably read, Tunbridge Wells was a was a hotbed for injection molding, which which again, you know, was luck for Peter Adolf. He'd been childhood friends with with Roy Tickle, if my memory serves me correctly, who had started a, a tool company who was doing injection molding, and he ended up buying that company. And I think those those three D teams they made the product feel that much more valuable. And people were already used to those figures because they'd seen them in Hornby sets and things and, and so on and so forth. But suddenly you've got a real person almost, you know, in miniature in front of you. And I think we were talking a moment ago about how having individual teams was, was important. But I think having individual players who you could even from quite early years, you could start to personalize in a way that you couldn't with the acetate players. So you could, you know, like I remember we, I'm an Everton fan, so I had Alan Ball. So I would, you know, as soon as I got my Everton team, I'd colour his hair bright orange and, and change his boots so that they were white. White boots, yeah. Although actually, from what I remember, the first Everton team that I got in Sabuto, all the boots were white. There was a short period where the the player and the base or the top part of the base was, was all one piece um, and it was a white plastic, so the boots were already white, so I had to colour everyone else's boots black. Long way of explaining, <laughs> but I, th- I think that that change to the 3D players was vital, I think. The, the World Cup was important as well because I think that was when they, they did their first television advertising and they'd done you know, a special effort to make sure that they had quite good replicas of the kits of the 16 teams who were involved. And obviously the World Cup coming to England was, was a massive deal anyway, so he was sort of riding on the back of that wave. It added another level to the collectability, the ability to make these 3D players. You know, I, I don't know about you or anyone else who might be listening, but, you know, I've got upstairs i've got 40 teams you know obviously there's only so many games you can play in a year or whatever so there's probably some of those teams who haven't haven't really had a good, good <laughs> run at good run at things but you know you'd, you'd go into the shop and you'd you'd see this wall of green boxes and that's where my pocket money went and that, you know that's where the pocket money of a lot of kids went at the time just to get the next team you know and if your mate got a new kit or a new team rather you'd want to have a new one as well and it, it just it it pushed the sales it's it's the same way as with early cameras it's it's all well and good selling someone a camera but the companies made their money by selling the film that went in the cameras um, and that's the vital thing and it, is, it was the same with Sabutio you can sell someone a Sabutio set and that you could almost sell that as a lost leader because then what you want is for them to buy the accessories and that's that's where you start start making money Peter Adolf's love of birds influences many of his business decisions when it comes to where he locates his factories. There's a factory in Gibraltar. Let's see if I can pronounce this next one right. Bulith Wells in Wales. Both bird watchers paradises. I'm um, going to give that the thumbs up. <laughs> um, he's a shy, complex man. By all accounts, a decent boss. Knew how to spend his money. I mean, he... Various fast cars passed through his hands over the years, uh, a Bristol 402, a gold Pontiac, Firebird, a, a Jaguar, a Ford Thunderbolt, all of which mean little to me as a non-driver. But uh, <laughs> I take it these cars weren't cheap. Yeah, I don't think they were. I think, you know, you might, if you were doing a sociodemographic um, classification of him, you might refer to him as a bon viveur. He, he was quite happy to spend his spend his money on the, on the things that he loved doing. You know, again, going back to how he started the business and I think he realized his luck at coming up with it and the fact that it did so well and you know why not why not spend the money while you can 
at its peak, Sabuccio was played in over 50 countries, so there was never going to be a shortage of fancy cars. Your book is very honest because as well as, you know, highlighting the fact that many thought he was a, a decent boss, you also mentioned that outworkers weren't brilliantly paid. The average Sabuccio outworker by then, I think in the mid to late 60s, is painting up to a thousand figures a week, while those assembling the figures are, are putting together about 4,000 figures a week. Sabuccio is investigated on a number of occasions by the low pay unit. There's an appearance on a Jimmy Young show back in the day where um, Adolf has to answer those allegations. But uh, Sabuccio's reputation survives. It's, as you've mentioned, the 66 World Cup. The game, Sabuccio, is just going from strength to strength at this time, just before you begin your association with Sabuccio. Football games are starting to be all the rage. You've got football comics are starting to become a real thing. You've got football magazines are starting to be a, a thing. And uh, I mean, we talk about how maybe the Premier League in the early 90s, that changed football, took it to a new level. There were people who didn't like football before that, possibly because of the hooligan element, the rundown stadia, but the Premier League transformed that. But it seems that in that mid-60s period, football was also enjoying a bit of a, a boom on the back of the World Cup. Yeah, I, the crowds were big. People were going, they were taking their family with them, or not necessarily their family, but you know, lots of people going to see football. And one of the things I think that's important to note is that Sabuto wasn't originally sold in toy shops. It was sold in sports shops because George Underwood believed that, as was the case for me, that people would play Sabuto because they couldn't play football because of you know rain or whatever. And so if you put them in the sports shops, that's where people are going to find them. It was a brilliant idea because not only did it mean that you'd catch people in the right place, but it also meant that you weren't competing with other toys. That's my recollection of buying my first Sabucho teams. I could only buy them from a local sports shop. Couldn't find yeah. them anywhere yeah. else. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I just want to go back on, on something you were talking about, the, the outworks. I know there was a lot of controversy about how little they got paid, but one, one of the great things that I enjoyed when I was writing the book was I, I put an advert in some of the local newspapers around Tunbridge Wells so that I could see if I could meet some people who used to work for Sabutio. And I met a couple of the outworkers and you'll have to forgive me because I can't remember the lady's name, but she was a lovely lady and she, they did it for pin money. So the fact that they were getting paid so low, although these days it wouldn't be allowed, it wasn't a problem for them because they were, and I know it's, it's um, not PC to say it now, but you had a lot of housewives because the husbands were at work, housewives were at home, cleaning and so on and so forth that's just the way it was but this gave them a chance to be able to stay at home do what they had to do at home but also to earn a little bit of extra money the, the lady that I met was amazing she was she wasn't a painter she was a, an assembler so if you imagine a, a single Sabuto player you've got the the hollow base into which you've got to put the washer then you've got to put the the flat bit of the base which has got the um, the slit in it which then the player goes into so you've got four pieces you've got to assemble those and they had to do about four thousand a week and then you had to put all the players into boxes. And so I interviewed her at least probably 20 years after she'd stopped working. She still had a hollow in her thumb from where she would push the players into the box. Because if you can imagine doing that 4,000 times a week for 10, 15 years. It's one of the things I remember from, from interviewing people, her just showing me her thumb. And also what she'd done is she'd kept one figure from every different set that she'd ever produced. So she had this big bag which I'm sure collectors would love to get hold of, of, of everything from the very first set that she'd done all the way through. I don't know if you remember Sport Billy. Yeah. Which is the little 
five-a-side thing that didn't really last very long. And she had one of them, and she had one one sort of unique player from every from everything she'd ever worked on. It's just, it was just a nice little insight in, into that life. And at no point when I was interviewing her did she say that she'd felt exploited by the low pay or anything. You know, she could do it while she was listening to the radio or you know sitting at the back of the house watching the world go by. Because once you can do something like that, that that mechanical thing of just picking up one piece, putting the other, sticking it all together. And they, and they could do it pretty quickly. Did you have to wait a while to get a response to that advert? Not that long, to be honest. Um, I think it was one of the, it was a weekly paper down there. Um, obviously, this was before the internet was so big. So I'd put my phone number in and I think I'd put my address in, which these days you probably wouldn't do because you get people coming around and beating you up and stuff. But, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I remember I got responses pretty quickly and I've done it in Liverpool as well because I wanted to, that was more of a long shot because I wanted to find um, anyone who might have known anything about William Keeling. Um, and I was very lucky to find one guy who'd been there right at the start. Yeah, and the response was good. You know, people were just interested. That she was the lady I spoke to was just happy to reminisce. You know, she she enjoyed the time that she did it. And as I say in the book, there was a period where pretty much everyone in the area either worked for Sabutio or knew someone who worked for Sabutio. It was its own little community. Given some of the ingenious Sabucho accessories created over the years, I'm surprised that they didn't come up with a Sabucho thumb protector for the assemblers because uh, that hollow doesn't sound like fun. No, no, no. I think they call that a thimble. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I think you, you needed, although I'm showing you now, even though this is audio, yeah, you needed that flexibility, which I think a thimble would take away because I don't know if you've got a Sabutio player to hand there, but they're, they're quite small and delicate. I think the thimble would stop you being able to do the other bit. So you'd be taking the thimble on and off. Just before the arrival of Sabutio in your childhood home, your family had a shelf full of football games, Soccerama, Wembley, Waddington's Table Soccer. That's the one that I remember. Somehow that came into my life after Sabutio. And it wasn't that bad a game, actually. It was uh, tiddlywinks, I think, with football figures, but it was okay. It was decent. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a terrible game at all. It was a bit weird how you then, you know, the players would move around the pitch because obviously they're just, you know, their footballers standing on, a, on another tiddlywink. But yeah, we had, we had as much fun with that as, as many other games. It was a reasonable approximation of, of football, although they, they never made any attempts to make accessories for it. You never bought any other teams. You just bought that set and that was it. And I think in a way that shows the difference between Sabuto and some of the other games. You know, the same with Striker, although they did have accessories, not they didn't have as many. And, and, and that's how Sabuto succeeded so well. Soccerama, that was a board game, I think, once endorsed by one of your heroes, Alan Ball, I believe. Yeah, yeah. F funnily enough, in, over Christmas in lockdown, so I was here just with my wife and my dog, and my wife refused to play Soccerama or Sabutio <laughs> or Wembley with me. So I had I had a game of Soccerama. In fact, I played each game on its own or on my own, where I allocated a player to, to her, Katie, and one to my dog, Rooney. Um, and I played against the two of them, trying to make decisions in the way that they might have. Rooney won Soccerama. Um, he got all the way to the first division. Obviously, this is first division old money. There's a really weird thing in Soccerama. Basically, in Soccerama, you start at the bottom of the fourth division and you play matches. So there's a dice for your team and a dice for the other team. If you win, you move up three places. If it's a draw, you move up one place. If you lose, you go nowhere. You get a proportion of the gate money. 
for each one. So as you go up, you then go into the next division and, and partway through, you could enter the cup and you could enter the cup winners cup if you won the cup and so on and so forth. But there's this anomaly I found, which I didn't remember from when I originally played it, where you could just end up in a loop because there's one thing where you, if you land on the wrong square, you end up going back a certain number of places in order to get out of that loop. You have to draw two games before you get back to that place. Otherwise you, you just loop. And I had to invent a new rule to get past it because all of us would have been stuck at the bottom of the fourth division, but it was an enjoyable game and you could buy star players to help you win games. You've got gate money. You know, they were quite nice little touches. You know, star player demands a transfer. It's quite realistic in terms of a board game representation. I never really played football manager or anything like that, but Soccerama was basically the same as that. And I think they, they just programmed that. And it's an enjoyable game. I would recommend it to everyone. It's re- really weird, though, because I've totally forgotten when I got it out of the box. It feels like I've bought a prototype because the board is really flimsy and the money's a bit weird. And maybe it is a, maybe it's a prototype, and I didn't realise. Very enjoyable. Wembley is, um, I don't know if you've ever played Wembley. No, I was reading up on it. It's new to me that a wooden lead game, is it? Wembley is great. It, basically, it's the FA Cup. So however many players you've got, you all get a certain number of teams. And then you have the draw in the same way as you do. And it starts in the equivalent of, of round four. So there's 32 teams. So you've got teams spread across the four divisions. The, the unique selling point of Wembley was that you had a different dice depending on which division you were in. So the first division had a dice which was loaded in effect. It had one zero on it. I think it's got one one, two twos, a three and a four. Was that six? So it's such that when you're playing with a, a first division team, as it was then against a fourth division team, who've got like, I think it's got three zeros on it, two ones and a two, you're much likely to win, but it is still possible to have an upset. So, and it just works like a cup competition like that. And you win, again, you, you make money by getting the gate receipts and then you can buy star players to help you in the next round. The, the weird thing is that the winner of the game is not the person who wins the FA Cup. This very much reflects modern day football. The winner of the game is the, the player with the most money at the end. Okay. Well, that's some real foresight from the makers <laughs> of Wembley. Yeah. Although, although when I played it over Christmas on my own, I just played it that the player who had the, the winning team in the cup won. And again, that was, that was my dog. Just on the dog, uh, before I move on with this interview, I'm going to hazard a guess here as to how old the dog is. I'm going to base this on the fact you've revealed the name is Rooney. Given mm-hmm. Everton fans had a perhaps troubled relationship with Rooney while he was at United, might the dog by any chance be under four years old and you got it when Rooney returned to Everton? The thing is, I'm not your typical Everton fan. I know most Everton fans disliked Rooney. I always, and I turned out to be correct, I always did imagine that he would wear his Everton pyjamas even when he was at Man United. And I sympathise with him for choosing to move to Man United. I think in an ideal world, he would have stayed at Everton and helped us win every competition in the world. But we didn't have any money. We didn't have enough good players. By pure chance, I saw his first ever league game. The first match of the season when it was the 125th anniversary it was again, we were at home against Tottenham and I'd heard the buzz around him and I'd seen him on the bench. We played against Southampton the previous season, but he hadn't come on. And a lot of the fans around me were going on about how brilliant he was. And, that you know, these were the sort of fans who go to away games, who, who also go and see youth team games and stuff like that. So they knew how brilliant he was, which I didn't realise. But in that Tottenham game, it's quite clear that he was already at 16. He was much better than, than any other player on the pitch. And, and obviously everyone always talks about his goal against Arsenal that, that shot him to stardom. But in that very first game, we were losing 2-1. 
and it, I think there's about 15 minutes left. I'm sure people can look online and, and disprove me at the times. It felt like there was about 15 minutes left. Um, and he received the ball on the edge of the box in a similar position to, to when he scored that goal against Arsenal six weeks later or whatever it was. So here he is on his debut at Goodison with 2-1 down. There's about 15 minutes to go. Most 16-year-olds or 16-and-a-half-year-olds, I think, would have taken a shot. But he just slowed the game down. He looked around. He saw, I can't remember who was coming up. It was the left back. And he rolled a perfect pass in. The left back shot, scored, got the equaliser. And in that little moment, you saw that he was so much better than anyone else on the pitch and so mature for such a young player to see what was happening around him, not take the obvious option of a you know a wild shot that might or might not get in, see that there was someone coming up, see that they were in a better position and, and play the perfect pass under quite intense pressure from the, the Tottenham defence. I sort of knew then that he was, I always sort of felt he was too good for us because we just didn't have any money at that time. And so, yeah, so going back to your original question about the dog, this has nothing to do with Sabuti at all, but my wife wanted a dog for about 10 years and I eventually I, I gave in. I said, you can have a dog if we can call it Rooney, and this um, he's uh, seven and a half now, so he was still he was still United, but as I say, I never, I never disliked Rooney for leaving. I'm glad we uh, we cleared that up, and I think it's a fair deal. Your wife gets her dog, you get to call the dog Rooney. Exactly. So Sabuto finally arrives in your childhood home. This would have been during the early heavyweight era. I'm guessing the short sleeve V neck figures. Was that your? Um, it was just after that. So just it was sort of. That. I think we got our first set. It was a, it was the Continental Edition, so it was, it was sort of late sixties, early seven, yeah, late sixties, I would say. And that first set didn't have those V-neck players. It had, as I say, this was the set which had a slight peculiarity. I'm not sure if it's even in the book, which I've got here to just check where the the base and the player are are one piece of plastic. It's not slotted in. Um, let me have a look if it's got that. Oh uh, yeah, it does. What what page are you on? I've got my book here. Yeah, no, actually, it doesn't have it. I was looking. Okay. I'm on page. I'm on page fifty six. But yeah, might yeah, I think we did. Our original players might be walkers, as they're defined there. But yeah, so they they weren't the slotting ones that you got before that and after it. But they they were just post those. You know, the classic heavyweight V necks. Okay. Yeah, I can see the walkers here and the heavyweight V necks. The bit I could really relate to in your book right at the start is where you're talking about uh, you and your brothers having special cushions to protect your knees. Mm-hmm. Because for the first eight or nine years that I was playing Sabucho, I never got anywhere near playing it on a table. I'm, I'm not sure who did. Great game, but it came at a price, you know, chronic back problems, sore knees. Yeah. Yeah, you did. I think we, we introduced special rules because we we had I don't know if anyone else got these hessian carpets which we had and that's why we had the sabuto cushions and what that meant was that you couldn't move around the pitch that quickly because obviously you needed to get your cushion in place before you did anything so we 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 came up with a rule which, which is not in in professional levels of sabuto where you couldn't shoot until the goalkeeper was ready and there, there were two reasons for introducing that that local rule you might call it number one was was the cushion situation and number two was we decided that in real football the goalkeeper hopefully is always going to be ready you know the goalkeeper doesn't have to run back from having been center forward to then get ready to save a shot so if if I was attacking and you know I was playing against my brother and he made a quick attack by the time I've got round I've got my pillow down I've got hold of the goalkeeper's stick potentially he could have shot and it, it just didn't feel realistic so we had the ready rule which we introduced. It's quite funny, actually, that you bring up the, the Sabuto cushions because I remember when the book came out, there were some online forums 
back then not as profligate as they are now if that's the right word or not proliferated as they are now where people go oh nobody has an on no nobody has a nobody has a sabutio cushion and i was like you know i'm not saying everyone in the world has got a sabutio cushion i'm simply saying we did and everybody in the world should have had a sabutio cushion you can have a cushion make it make it a sabutio one. And as you say yeah we didn't play on a table for for many a year so around the time that you and your brothers are playing your first Sabuccio games. Peter Adolf sells Sabuccio to Waddington's in 1968. He's retained as a director and consultant. And when I read that, I'm thinking inevitably this isn't going to end well. These things rarely do. Why do you think he sold to Waddington's? Did he need to? What could Waddington's give him that he wasn't able to do? I think the main reason was he felt that the company had got too big for him. There's a little anecdote that I mentioned in the book where he, he's in his office one day and he sees someone walking you know, through the delivery yard or whatever. And he says to his secretary, who's that? He doesn't know who it is. He thinks it's someone visiting. And she says, oh, that's a new driver that we've taken on. And I think at that point, he realized that, that it had all got too big for him. And that sowed the seeds for him wanting to sell it. And the whole thing about selling it, but being kept on, as a director, I think he wanted to sell it because he thought it was too big, but he didn't want to let it go straight away. He wanted to still be able to influence it because, you know, one of the things that, that, that came across in talking to people um, when I was writing the book was, was how much he cared about the people who worked for him, about the game itself, but also about the kids, because it was mainly kids then, the kids who played it. Um, and he wanted to give them something that they would cherish and treasure. And so when he sold it, because he felt that someone else could take it to the next level in a way that he possibly couldn't, he still wanted to be able to try to guide that to that next level. But as you say, you know, it's like when a manager gets kicked up to be director of football or when, um, when Rafael Benitez came in at Liverpool as, as joint manager. Gerard Julio. Oh, sorry, sorry, Julio with, uh, with Roy Evans. It's never going to last. And, and, and that proved to be the case. And, I think both parties probably knew it was not going to last, but they started off with the best will in the world. Another one of the really interesting things when I was writing the book, because it was before the days of the internet, because now when you're, when you're writing a book, you can do so much of your research on the internet. Back then, although you know it's only 16 years ago, the internet was in its youth, so you couldn't find as much. So I did go up to an archive in Leeds where they had all the old letters um, and correspondence and company documentation and the relationship between Waddington's and Peter Adolf was always very friendly and they seemed to have a very good, amicable relationship. He wasn't selling under duress. He didn't feel that the price was too low at the time or anything like that. Um, and so I think they did go into it with the best hopes that it would be the best future. But I just think that Adolf hadn't really considered the fact that once you sell to a big company, they are going to have ambitions for the game in terms of they're going to be target driven in terms of the finances rather than target driven in terms of how people are enjoying the game and I don't think he appreciated that. Around this time those early heavyweights transition into what becomes the peak heavyweight era of the early 70s it's that time that wall charts and catalogues are really establishing themselves all sorts of accessories are coming in in September 1970 and at this point he's still only in his mid-50s Peter Adolf resigns from Waddington's. 
just going back to what you said a couple of minutes ago, he feels that Waddington's weren't quite grasping the needs and desires of boys. So that was obviously uh, a bit of a big thing for him. And also he fails to get Waddington's on side with his idea to promote Sabutio in new markets, more specifically uh, the US, and he leaves. For me, reading that, the sad thing really is he's no longer involved with Sabucho when it's actually arguably moving into its glory days. He's not there anymore. It's like when a football manager has brought a load of players through the youth team, it doesn't quite work, he gets the sack, and then they, they, they go on to win the league. When I was doing the research, that point suddenly struck me that it had its real heyday and, you know, one game of the year, I think 1971, and then again in 87 after he's left. And it just felt a bit sad for him that he wasn't there during that time. You know, I'm sure he still had quite a nice life and he, he, he made the money and so on and so forth, which, you know, sort of translated to, you know, almost 10 million, I suppose, in, in today's money. So I'm sure he was fine with that. But there was an element of sadness and there wasn't much he could do about it. And that's why in, in later years... He kept coming back to Sabutio and trying to rediscover that in his own way, you know, tried to try to launch it in America again. But I think the problem, if you look at Waddington's rationale, football hadn't really succeeded in America. And so why would Sabutio? And so, you know, their business rationale was, you know, why are we going to spend all this money on something that we know is not going to work? But I suppose he still had that risk taking fervor within him and couldn't stand to be sort of shackled in that way. But also, certainly in the first part of the 70s, you look at what Waddington's did with Sabucho, it's hard to find fault. To me, they yeah. seemed the right custodians. What they did was yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I think they were. And I think he, you sort of feel if they'd have let him try America, he might not have left. Um, and then he could have still been involved. But yeah, as you say, it went from strength to strength in the early 70s. Conquered Europe, had franchises all, all over the world. Tournaments were being, you know, they had the, the first, well, that wasn't called it, they had the first World Cup in 1970. And it, it did go from strength to strength. So I, th- I think at that time, they, they were the right owners for it. And I think they, they did well by the game. And I think maybe he, he got a, a bee in his bonnet about America and, and walked away. Maybe, to, you know, maybe six months later, he would have made a different decision. Who knows? Still to come. I think the thing is when you're playing a video game, even if you're in the same room, you're not facing each other. You're not having that human contact. And the thing that Sabuto gives you is that level of competition that you get with real football, but also the human contact, which obviously is something that we're all missing a lot at the moment. So you can only play you can only play in your bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Early and quiet retirement were clearly not for him because he immediately sets about designing what he hoped would be a superior football game, which I knew nothing about until a few years ago when I read the book written by uh, Peter Adolf's son, Mark, grown up with Sabucho. This new game is mentioned, Aquila or Aquila, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, the Latin name for Eagle. Yeah. He also creates a baseball game, again, I'm assuming with an eye on crack in the American market. We won't cover the baseball, but worth noting that in your book, Flick to Kick, you write that five years after that resignation from Waddington's, Waddington's actually employed a, a, a US-based PR firm to market Sabucho out in the States. I think approaching uh, what would have been maybe NASL teams back then. Yeah. 
well. I mean, it took five years for Waddington to align themselves with a bit of Peter Adolf's thinking. It, it maybe highlights the fact he wasn't necessarily thinking along the wrong lines when he made yeah, that decision. I think maybe it was it was down to timing, um, and he was just unfortunately, you know, you, you might say, well, if they tried again when the World Cup was in America, is it ninety four? Yeah, ninety four. Uh, maybe that's the time to launch it. I don't know. It's just. Maybe American kids are different than our <laughs> than kids in Europe, you know. But it's you know it, it was a massive game in South America as well. You know there was there was a Brazilian game, which I can't remember the name of it, which had developed from using bottle tops, weighting down bottle tops, and you know basically the same as Sabutio, but not with the figures on and just using the bottle tops as the players. So it was big there, but it's just never really happened for it in the states. What do you we know? know about this this game? Is it Aquila, Aquila? Yeah, Aquila, yeah. I mean, he was just trying to do what he'd done in effect with Sabuto. You know, obviously Sabuto had already existed, so he made it again, but with a different name and, and tried to tried to sell it over there. But I just don't think it ever it ever caught on. And it was it's that that thing that we were saying before that maybe he felt he'd left Sabuto too soon and was still trying to chase that dream. Because it clearly wasn't motivated by money. He wouldn't have been wanting for money. I don't think so. And, you know, also, I think that there are easier ways to make money than, than launching a new game. Yeah, yeah. And arguably a game that was probably the best boys game of that time. Yeah, it's not the thing to try and compete with. There was a period in his life where he felt that anything could be sabutioized. And so he was, you know, he was a little bit obsessed with that. <laughs> Anyone who's ever played Sabutio is a little bit obsessed with it. Um, you know, and he had the the, uh, the Speedway game and things like that. And obviously diversified into hockey and rugby and the cricket. But ultimately, in a way, his if we can use an analogy of music, his first album was the best and he was he was never going to top it. I think eventually a, a prototype of Aquila is shown to Waddington's. Understandably, they were unimpressed, annoyed by this possible rival. Lawyers were threatened. Peter Adolf backs down. And just going back to 68, the clever thing that Waddington's did when they bought Sabucho is they didn't really tinker with it, did they, those first few years? They just built on what was a, a brilliant product. Yeah, they saw that it was a good product, that people were buying it. The main thing they did was just expand the range. As we were talking about before, once you've got people who've, who've bought the sets, then they're going to want to buy the accessories. So one of the guys that, that I spoke to was John Burbridge, who was, you know, his job was basically to come up with ideas for the accessories. That's what they did. They just expanded the accessory line. They expanded the number of teams available. Also, expanding the teams available helped them sell the product more widely around the world because it's all well and good trying to sort of squeeze English kits into foreign clubs. But a lot of the the kits that you would get abroad, you couldn't really say, well, this Norwich kit is, I don't know, FC Swaller or something like that. I think just expanding that product range in the the way really did, did help them sell in those foreign markets. By 76, an independent analysis of the business recommends a move away from concentrating on football alone. Is that the point at which it starts to go a bit downhill with Waddington's? I'm not sure. I just think the world was changing as well at the same time. Um, And also this sort of, although this might have been slightly later, the quality of the product started to reduce a little bit when they started having these figures which were not hand-painted. And they moved the operation away from Tunbridge Wells so that you were getting these machine-stamped teams. And what that meant was that in order for it to be financially viable, they had to produce large numbers of 
teams in one go. And what they'd done well was to offer a wide range of teams. What this meant was that they had to start reducing the range of teams again. Um, and I think that's, that's maybe the problem. I think they were, they were trying to find new markets by, by pushing the, the rugby and the cricket and so on and so forth. But I don't know if you've ever played the rugby game. It's not, it's not possible to play the rugby game. It doesn't work. Playing Sabuto football is, is hard enough. But trying to pass an oval-shaped ball by flicking it along the ground is you're doomed to frustration and lots of broken little plastic men. I thought the cricket was more successful, but I thought the rugby set always looked brilliant, though it fascinated me. I've never seen one. Well, don't take this the wrong way, but if you come up to my attic, (laughs) we have got I've got the Sabuto rugby up there. It it does look nice, and the players. The players are actually a little bit more solid. They're quite useful for you can use them for playing Sabuto football, which and it gives you a slight edge. But the game itself is ridiculous. You just can't play it. The cricket's great. The cricket's great fun. The the rugby scrummer was originally a thing that I can't remember the, the lady's name. I think it was his his personal assistant. They'd come up with this idea which was an improvement on the dice. So you'd put the ball in the top and whichever hole it came out, that would give you a number. And that eventually turned out to be the rugby scrummer, which, although the rugby game didn't work, that was the only nice bit about it was that the, the, the scrummer, you know, that way of replicating a scrum was quite nice. But other than that, it's, it's best left in the attic. We're going to uh, jump to the pre-Sabuccio world now, something I didn't know before reading Flick to Kick uh, all those years ago, and that is the forerunner of Sabuccio, New Footy. Tell us... Mm-hmm about uh, William Lane Keelan up in Liverpool? I mean, we touched on him earlier. He was just looking for, for something to, sort of, to entertain his sons, um, David and Donald, and came up with this idea. There, there was a, another game around the same time called Shoot, which I don't really have any details of, not, not to be confused, obviously, with the, the magazine. And he put this together and, and, and did sort of proper market research, local boys clubs and things like that, and started making the game and producing it. And... And as I said before, you know, one of the, the people I managed to speak to when I was writing the book was to do with this, where I'd put an advert in one of the Liverpool papers. Um, and there was a chap called Ted Kuhn who, who had been friends with William Keeling's sons and they used to play it together. And he had one of the original sets. And basically, if you were to look at it and not see the name, you would just assume it was an, an early Sabutio set. Again, as I explained in the book, his, his big mistake was he didn't, he didn't take a patent out on it. Which is the biggest mistake. Yeah. I don't know that much about his background or why he didn't do that. Maybe he just thought nobody else would be so <laughs> cruel as to steal it. But he didn't take the patent out on it. He did eventually take the patent out after Peter Adolf had, had launched Sabutia. But obviously the, that particular horse had, had already bolted. That's the point at which he becomes aware of Sabutio. But because he didn't have the patent, there's no breach of patent. Yeah, Copyright it, can't do anything about it. Yeah, there was nothing he could do at all. And actually, talking of patents, one of the other really nice things when I was writing the book was going back to those original patents and, you know, some some of the illustrations from those patents are in the book and just looking at how things change. You know, one of the things that amazed me was the original idea was not flick to kick. It was you would hit the player with a a wooden spoon, um, which is described in the patent as as like an ice cream spoon, which has got slightly thicker end on one end. And things like that are just, I don't know, quaint, peculiar, astonishing. Snookerish, but, perhaps. Snookerish, yeah. But to come up with this idea 
And, and in a way, that makes me think that maybe Adolf didn't know about new footy, because why would you have that if someone had told you about this game where people would flick the players? Or other people could read it and say, that proves that he did know about new footy and he invented some other way to propel the players to make it different. Not that he had to, but it was just, it was really fascinating looking at those early patents and, and seeing, that, seeing those diagrams um, and, and the descriptions of the games. And weirdly enough, although the internet has got better, I was trying to find some of them earlier in preparation for, for our chat and couldn't find the, the, the resources that I got them from originally and no longer there. And I remember going into the British Library and, and finding them as well, but I'm sure I, could, I got them on the internet in the first place, but they're no longer there. The battle between Sabuccio and New Footy goes on for over a decade. And you mentioned it earlier. It appears that it's Adolf's link with the Medway Tool Company that presents him with the opportunity. It gives him the basis for Sabuccio's uh, eventual triumph. It's those molding machines that he acquires when he buys the company. And as you mentioned, well, these molding machines were being used to supply the likes of Scale Electrics and Hornby. And that really does put new footy in trouble really gives Sabuccio a hell of an advantage over them yeah I think it's you know it's like a marathon runner getting those those new shoes which which take two seconds off every mile suddenly it was excuse the cliche but it was a totally different ball game you know you you compare the the playability and the collectability of of the the molded players you know the, the OO scale with with the flat acetates and it and it took him onto another level and it also made production quite streamlined and quite easy and if you were going into a shop and looking to buy one or other then you, you're going to buy Sabuccio every time and New Footy did sort of catch up and did did produce 3D figures but could never really compete Sabuccio had just stolen a march. There's a point though where New Footy have one last throw of the dice and it makes me feel quite sorry for Keelan because he just seems to run out of luck there's something in your book about they launch a new advertising campaign. This is New Footy. The campaign tests well. They decide to roll it out nationally. They've built up huge stocks in anticipation of increased demand. The advert's going to go out, I think, during I Love Lucy, which would have been a massive show here at the time. What happens next reminds me of USA 94. We're thinking, okay, is the game finally going to take off in America? The Americans are playing their first game on the second day of that World Cup. What happens? OJ goes on the run. And coverage of that game is interrupted to follow this, whatever it was, this white Bronco, I think it was. What happens to I Love Lucy? I don't know if you can remember. I don't know the specific details, but for some reason, that episode of I Love Lucy didn't get shown in a, a different program, which people who love Lucy wouldn't have loved was put on in its place and so as soon as people tuned in at the specified time and saw that I Love Lucy wasn't on they stopped watching and so a much smaller percentage of people saw the advert than was expected therefore the sales were a lot lower Keeling was left with this massive load of stock that he couldn't shift because the demand just wasn't there and that was the end of New Footy and and it was shortly after that that Peter Adolf bought the company basically he bought the opposition there's that story about is it right that there was a point where coca-cola could have bought pepsi and chose not to but uh, peter adolf struck whilst uh, whilst he could and, and bought them and, and put them out of business in effect the the story goes that he he bought the company went up to the the factory he got all of the stock in a pile in the middle of the courtyard or whatever it was the delivery yard and set fire to a lot of it 
which is quite theatrical. And I, I was going to ask you if we know whether that's true or not, but if it isn't true, it would be an Arsabuccio drama, perhaps, because it's, <laughs> it's a very strong visual. It's, it's one of those things where if it isn't true, then it definitely should be. And I certainly hope it is. And it sounds like the sort of thing that a sort of maverick like Adolf would do. And I know I'm going to annoy a lot of people when I say this, but as, as an Everton fan, I often think if I got loads of money, what would I do? Would I buy Everton and make them the best team in the world? Or would I buy Liverpool, sell all the players, <laughs> sell the ground, turn it into a housing estate? And there's a little bit of me, quite a large bit of me, actually, that thinks I'd rather do the second. I think you'd find some Everton fans might be persuaded by your your line of thinking there. I think some Everton fans would agree with me, but I, I think um, at this point in your podcast, some Liverpool fans are turning off. I'd just ask them to put themselves in the same situation in reverse. Let's finally talk about Flick to Kick, an illustrated history of football, your Sabucho book published by Orion in 2004. Tell us how that came about. Was it an idea that came together quickly? Reasonably quickly. Um, I was quite lucky as you know, which I won't deny that my wife is in publishing. And so one day I said to her, oh, there's no really good books about Sabutio. I mean, there, there, there's a book that, that people may well have read called 50 Years of Flicking by Richard Payne, which, which is a good book, but it's not got colour pictures and it, it wasn't published in a way that celebrated the game in the way that it deserved to be celebrated. It, was, it came out in, in 96 as a sort of 50-year anniversary thing. And, you know, it's it's a really nicely written book, but I don't think it, it didn't celebrate it as, as much it, as it should. And when I saw that, I was like, you know, Sabutio deserves something much glossier to show the the beauty of, of the game. And so I suggested this to my wife one day over breakfast. And to my surprise, she said yes. To my further surprise, she suggested that I write it. And at that point, you know, I'd, I had never written a book and had no anticipation, expectation of, of writing one. But she persuaded me that it was something I could do. And so I started doing a little bit of research, put it together. And we, it's quite a weird thing. There's, if you don't know about publishing, not all books are made like, like this, but there are some companies who are called uh, packagers. And what they do is they'll come up with an idea, they'll find a writer, they'll put the package together, and then they will go to a publisher. And the publisher is the one who actually takes the risk on publishing it. And that's what happened with my book, a company called Essential, that are, that are still going strong. And that's who Katie was working for. So they helped me put my initial pitch together, which we then sold to Orion. And um, luckily enough, they, they said that they wanted to make the book. So in those days, as you've said, the internet would have been in its youth, which meant that you would have been having to venture out to do a lot of your research. Do you miss being able to carry out your research in those old ways? Or are you just happy that you can just do it from home or most of it? It, it entirely depends on the book. Um, so some of my books going out and interviewing people weren't really part of the process. So I, I did a book about science, another one about philosophy, where I didn't, you know, I think pretty much everyone in the philosophy book was dead when I started writing the book. So I couldn't have interviewed them anyway. But I did a book about the Eagle comic and Dan Dare. And one of the joys of that was being able to go out and, and interview some of the people who'd, who'd worked on the comic in its early days. So it depends on the book. It's not that it's not possible to go out. Well, it is at the moment because of the pandemic. But where necessary, you can still do it. And it, it's interesting and it's nice to do. And you, I think talking to people who were there at the time gives you insights that you can't get by just doing internet research or library research. 
Um, but obviously there, there's some books that, that you, where you don't need to do that. I'm writing a book about dogs at the moment and just the nature of that book doesn't require me to talk to, to anyone really other than the people I'm making the book with uh, because it's not about anything specific that you you know it's not like I'm I'm not writing a history of crafts for instance if I was writing a his, history of crafts then I would be going out and talking to people was Sabutio in your life at this point 2003 2004 when you decided you're going to write the book I wasn't playing it much at that point once I started researching the book I thought it'd be nice to start playing it. and so I joined a club in Putney so I was playing with them while I was writing it which was quite nice and we entered tournaments and so on and so forth and at, at one point I'd risen to 51 in the in the country. I was going to ask you about this I remember that you were entering competitions I think when we met previously. Yeah, I was entering competitions I, I don't know if it was a statistical anomaly but they used to produce annual league table or national league tables and there was one week where I was 51. It might have been not many other people who played that week and I'd won a couple of games at a tournament. But I remember playing, again, I'm really sorry, but I can't remember. I played the British number one at the time in a tournament uh, because you, you would turn up to tournaments and you didn't know who you were going to play. In. And he absolutely slaughtered me. The, the final score was 10-1. And I only got the one because he let me score. In the book, I talk about Andrea Piccoluga, who was the, the junior world champion in the late 70s and how John Burbage was amazed that he could actually curl the ball um, when he shot. And this, this guy I played in this tournament, he could do that. And also the game at the very highest level then, and I'm sure now as well, had totally changed in terms of the way it was played. So I was still playing with my old Sabuto figures with the curved base. These guys were playing with totally flat bases. They weren't interested in curling around players they would play with a, a 6-4 formation. So they would kick off, they'd get the ball in the shooting area. They were able to flick from the full length of the pitch and just touch the ball enough to get into a shooting position and then they'd score. When I was playing growing up, you know, we would dribble and pass and dribble and pass and stuff. But it's, it's just a totally different game. So you are entering competitions with these older bases. That Puts me in mind of Buen Borg's tennis comeback, uh, <laughs> a wooden racket at the Monte Carlo Open. Yeah, you're, I think you're in... not wrong. It was um, I, I did buy myself a team with flatter bases to try and compete, but I was already so far behind. It, you know, I might as well have just stuck with the with the old school. And, you, and the thing is now, you know, there are tournament. There, there is this split between old Sabutio and, and new table soccer, I suppose you might call it, where you you know there are tournaments for people like me who just who like the the old fashioned version. Like the game itself, flick to kick feels timeless. It was, I think, a seminal book. These days, something of a must-have for the ever-growing online Sabutio enthusiasts. As I think you mentioned earlier, there wasn't, well, there certainly wasn't that online presence, Sabutio presence, when you wrote that book. What about the book are you particularly proud of all these years later? I think the fact that whenever someone, you know, happened to come across someone on Twitter or something like that, that they do get out and read it every now and then you know, and flicking through it in preparation for this interview, just there's something about the green. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if anyone else has this, you know, I often have dreams where I walk into a shop that I'm not expecting to have Sabuto and at the corner of my eye, I see that very specific green of those boxes in the late, the late sixties and you go over and, and obviously in my dream, suddenly the whole shop is filled with every bit of Sabuto that you would ever want to buy. And I think 
in the same way as when I pick up one of my old Sabuto boxes in the in the attic or in the room upstairs, it takes me back to a time when I played the game a lot. You know, it, it's sort of reminiscing about your childhood and, and the times that you had then. I, I don't take credit for this. I think it was the designers and the photographer. They've caught the time of the of the game when it was at its peak and they've brought it to life on the pages with some of those images. And, you know, you can flick through the book, look at some of the, the accessories and some of the old teams and it just feels, you know, to use that, uh, I think it's that Danish word, hoogly. There's, there's something really comforting about it. How involved were you in the process of collating all those images? Because there are so many in the book. I did all of the collation, basically. So a lot of the the photographs of the factory works and stuff like that, that was stuff that I found on my research. I selected all the images. We had a day of photography up with Peter at Sabutio World, where he had a lot of, you know, there's like a picture of the world of sport in the book. He had a lot of those those games there so we had a day there where I Pete Whitehead from Sabuto World and also on the way up there I'd I'd gone to Mike Peacock of Little Plastic Men and borrowed some of his stuff so I'd I'd brought everything together and we had a photographer that the publisher had found and we took all of those images yeah so it was interesting bringing those all together and funnily enough there's things that I thought were in the book that aren't in the book one of the things when I was researching the Eagle book that I mentioned earlier was uh, I found one of the early adverts for Sabuto, so it's nice finding that. And I was sure that we that we have one of those adverts in the book, but I couldn't find it. Um, so that was surprised it wasn't in. But yeah, it's just uh, it's really nice. The, the other thing I really like about the book is hopefully people will think it, it it brings them back to that time. But also, I've tried to not be too serious, you know, because I think one of those things when you play with your mates and when you chat with your mates now is that banter that you have. So I've tried to put jokes in that people will appreciate and. Really sadly, reading it yesterday and today, some of them still made me chuckle. (laughs) The thing is, when we previously met, your book had just come out and it captures Sabucho perfectly. But at the same time, there was this very curious relaunch of Sabucho by Hasbro with a return to those flat figures. And 15, 16 years on, I'm still baffled by that relaunch I I felt it was a strange decision yeah I can't remember if we met at a time when I'd told you about discussions that I'd had with them when they were doing that relaunch they spent more time speaking to collectors than speaking to people who played the game so as well as having the flat acetate figures the base had an indentation the shape of a Sabuto player which meant that to all intents and purposes you couldn't play with it because when you have a hollow in the bottom of the base, you can't flick properly because it, it just gets stuck. And it was a shame because I think their their intentions were good and the fact that they've kept going with it shows that their intentions were good and they believe in it as a brand. And Hasbro now, it's not really a games company anymore. They are a company who owns brands that they believe in strongly, but what they do as a business to make money, because that's what they're there for, they look at different ways to exploit that brand. They know that Sabuto has a strong resonance with people of a certain age and will help them sell things. And so I think you know, they'll always believe in it. And in order to do that, they do have to keep the game going. But it's not necessarily for the best of people who actually want to play the game. And, and as a weird adjunct, I had a long time in discussions with Hasbro. I came up with an idea for a film not about the creation of Sabuto, which might in retrospect have been a better idea, but about a person who, like myself, was obsessed with the game 
and it took a long time to convince them it was a good idea and they gave me permission to try and sell the the film script and on three or four occasions we got very very close to making it and sadly it never actually happened but I think it shows that they still do believe in it as a brand although I'm not 100% sure they believe in it as a game. That's interesting I, I understand what you mean by that last line in your book and this is obviously 2004 but you were mentioning that there was a growing level of interest in the game that there was a new generation of enthusiasts here we are 15 16 years on and the younger generation uh, the generation beneath us have really got into sabucho in such a big way and they are the generation who would have just been exposed to video games full stop why is that i mean i think it's great what is it about sabucho that's hooked these these younger guys I think the thing is when you're playing a video game, even if you're in the same room, you're not facing each other. You're not having that human contact. And the thing that Sabuto gives you is that level of competition that you get with real football, but also the human contact, which obviously is something that we're all missing a lot at the moment. So you can only play, you can only play in your bubble. <laughs> and and I, it's a really good way for, for kids to connect with their fathers as well. It sounds a bit sexist that women do play to connect with their parents, let's say. You know, because when I was in discussions about trying to make this film, I went to a big tournament which was held up at the Etihad and there were families there. And, you know, the parents had entered the adults competition and the the kids had entered the junior competition and they were doing it together and enjoying it together. And I think it's something that you can bond across generations with, but also you can bond within your generation. You've been very kind with your time this evening. Just want to wrap up on some accessories because Flick to Kick documents many of the brilliant, sometimes baffling accessories offered by Sabucho during its peak years. Among my favourites were the live action corner kickers, which Flick to Kick revealed started life, I think, as um, rugby players, which makes sense. Was there a favourite accessory for you? I really like the practice goal. I don't think it's actually in the book. It's basically, it's a normal goal, but it's got a frontage on it with holes in where you could try and, you know, kick the ball into the different goals and get different points. So you could practice chipping the ball. I do like the corner kickers. I think they they work quite well. The throw-in takers are not very good, too difficult to control. And although I'm quite rude about the track-suited warm-up team in the book (laughs) because they don't really balance properly, it's the one thing that every now and then I'll look on eBay to see if there's one going cheap. I think they just look quite cool. The tracksuit? The tracksuited team. So it's, oh, it's oh okay, right. I'm thinking of the ball boys. I'm getting confused. I'm thinking... oh, yeah, no, basically, you could buy a whole team of players in their tracksuits, but weirdly, they've got one leg up in a sort of, almost in like a stalk position. Um, so you couldn't actually play with them. And obviously, you wouldn't warm up with them because in order to warm up, you need to play. But I just always think they look quite cool. Given the amount of stuff out there now, a lot of it is non-Sabucho. As you say, I think you're probably right to make that distinction between Sabucho and table soccer. There's so much table soccer stuff now. Are you tempted? Are you still buying stuff? You're happy with your 40 teams and your <laughs> your rugby Sabucho? Is that you done with Sabucho? Um, as I say, every now and then I look to see if there's a training team available on eBay Every now and then, I also look to see what the latest cost for a Sabucho Munich set is, which is, you know, one of these things that everyone goes on about, you know, being the the real collector's item. Is that the 74 World Cup? Yeah. 
basically the reason it's so valued as a collector's item was because it was a much bigger box than all the other sets. So they didn't make that many and shops couldn't fit them on their shelves properly. So not many people bought them and they, they were quite expensive compared to a normal set. So I do occasionally look to see what the latest Munich's. I saw one yesterday, actually, which was, I think it was £1,500. <sighs> yeah, I couldn't quite afford that £1,500. So, yeah, I decided not to buy that. Although, you know, one of these little dreams, again, I, that I always have is that I turn up somewhere and there's a factory full of these. You know, like at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a big warehouse where there's like a thousand Munich sets. Right, yeah, that's quite a, quite a dream. Although it's not £1,500, flick to kick is going for quite a bit of money <laughs> online. It, it's, it's incredible. You, we're recording this on a day where I tweeted this information out. You managed to find a reasonably priced copy, which went straight away, and that place is now out of stock. So it tells me that there is a demand for the book, that the interest in the book now would perhaps be greater than it was in 2004 because there is such a big online sabuccio community it's amazing that people like the book and still mention it i'm surprised and touched in in equal measure funnily enough i got an email about six months ago from a publisher in spain who was interested in publishing a spanish version or a spanish translation but it turned out that the negotiations with hasbro would be too difficult for them to to see it to fruition which is frustrating obviously from my point of view, because it would be quite nice. And there is, there is an Italian version, if anyone's listening. I think that, is, that might even be more readily available than the English version. But yeah, at the moment, there are, as far as I know from Orion, there are, there are no plans to reissue it. There was a few years ago, I don't know if you've seen this one, I brought, brought it down from my little storeroom upstairs. Obviously, nobody on the podcast can see this. That's a darker green, isn't it? The... Yeah, m and Marks and Spencer's a few years ago. Actually, if I look inside, it might tell me the year, but it might not. No, it doesn't. In my memory, it was about 10 years ago. Marks and Spencer's brought out a whole Sabutio range and they brought out Sabutio sets, Sabutio mugs, uh, a Sabutio shaving bag, whatever you call it, bathroom bag, shower, shower bag, which I bought. And they also bought out a copy of the book, um, which they just put their own cover on it. And as far as I know, that did quite well. And that Sabuto range lasted quite a while in, in M&S. That was the latest incarnation of it. I'll, I've got a couple of the Italian books. Because the, the Italians brought out the first translation in about 2005. And then they brought out a deluxe version a few years later. I think if, if it did get published again, it would hopefully sell. But I don't know. In the world where you can get most things on the internet now, whether there'd be a market for it, or maybe everyone who wants one's got one. My hunch is there would be a market for it. And I'm going to say that, because I know that this will be listened to by many of those Sabuccio enthusiasts, that if they don't have a copy, or even if they do have a copy, but it's such a good close community. And if on Twitter, they could retweet links to this show, links to the book itself, because I do think there would be a demand for it. I think as I've said, I think it's a seminal book. I think it may have been a book slightly before its time, a book that deserves a whole new audience because we both live in London. I'm on the renting side of things and I have moved so many times over the last 15, 16 years. I've got lots of books, but Flick to Kick is one of those books. I always have to know it's in a box of my favorite books <laughs> that I'm not going to lose track of because it's, it's, it's a beautiful book. And 95% of the questions, of the many questions in this interview have been gleaned from the book. 
Yeah, I sort of surprised myself when I was reading it, <laughs> to be honest. I say, you know, I wrote it 16 odd years ago and rereading it was, was a nice little memory boost. And yeah, there's stuff in there that I'd totally forgotten. And I was like, oh, I don't even remember doing that interview and it, th- things like that. It was quite nice. I should say, actually, that, that I think that last copy of the book that got bought today from, I think it was from the Little Plastic Men website, as I say, the photography in the book, some of the stuff in there was, was borrowed from Mike Peacock, who runs that website. And I think, from what I remember, we didn't pay him for those loans. We gave him a big box of the books. And it may well be that that last copy that sold today was the last one he had from that original stock. It could be. As I say, there, there is one on eBay at the moment for about £2. Then they jump up to £25, £26. Amazon, they're going for about £25, £26. Yeah. It has become a collector's item. Tell us where people can find you on the social media side of things and your various, I mean, you wear many hats. You're writer, director, actor. So wh- where's the best place for people to find your work and your social the moment, media? The only place I'm, I'm available is on Twitter, um, at Daniel Tatarski. Just my name, no spaces. Occasionally I'll tweet some stuff about Sabucha, but mainly stuff moaning about Everton. Well, I appreciate your time, uh, Daniel. Very last question. Do you still have that Everton team whose boots you had to colour in? I do. They're in, they're in the attic. They must be worth quite a bit. (laughs) Yes, I won't be selling them. Thank you to Daniel Tatarski, a very quotable guest. Thank you to his dog, Rooney, too, as 20 minutes from the end, Daniel's dog, in need of some attention, ended up on his owner's lap and was as good as gold. There were only two seconds of K9 heavy panting to edit out, which I must stress had to be edited out because as much as I love Sabuccio and Daniel's book, leaving the panting in there as Flickter Kicks author was waxing lyrical on this greatest of games might have left me needing to add an explicit rate into this particular episode. Appreciate you guys listening. Do please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you download it from and uh, share and retweet, repost, etc. Social media links, reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially critical, as I said last week. In fact, they are all important, particularly to one-man shows like this. This show doesn't have the resources of the bigger shows. If you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. It will increase this show's visibility in the Apple Podcast Store and help me to keep the show going. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts with Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts with Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. Appreciate your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.